Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is The Jim Rutt Show, and I'm your host, Jim Rutt. Our guest today is Douglas Rushkoff. He's been described as one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT. He's an author and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age. He is the author of 20 books, including the recent Team Human, which I recently read and which led me to invite Douglas on our show. He's also the host of the Team Human podcast. Welcome, Douglas. Good to be with you. How did you get to your current perspective? Give me a little mini bio. Gosh, I guess I was a uh, internet enthusiast in the late 80s and early 90s when I saw this tremendous potential for a renaissance in human communications. Instead of just being fed content from the top down, we were going to make it and share it with one another. And by the late 90s, I saw how this dream was really surrendered to Wall Street's dream of creating more predictable and manipulable consumers by any means necessary. And I feel that over the last 20 years, really a deeply anti-human ethos has been embedded in our society from, you know, certainly from old stuff like monies and corporations and and repressive government, uh, and now to new technologies and social media and culture. And uh, it brought me to a place where instead of just kind of critiquing the companies and the technologies and the ideas that they have, I thought it might be more fun to uh, kind of stimulate the immune response of the human organism and, you know, get people to long for real human experiences rather than just, you know, criticizing digital ones. Yeah, I like that. That's, uh, in fact, you know, what you describe as the center of your work. Human autonomy in the digital age uh, very much resonates with me because it does seem like we're in a battle between our humanness and institutional forces, which may well not have been created by anybody, may well be emergent, but do seem to be working against our human autonomy. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting. I, I sometimes don't really care whether it's intentional or not, as long as we can, you know, call it to attention now. But, you know, a lot of them really are a whole lot older than technology. They just weren't, you know, quite as pernicious, maybe, as they are now. I mean, I, in my work, I trace it all the way back to really the beginnings of the industrial age and, you know, the dawn of the printing press and capitalism and the way that we developed institutions and really operating systems that extract value from people and places and deliver them up to these big abstract companies. And, you know, it was one thing, I guess, to have assembly lines and workers and to extract resources and all from the planet. But, you know, once this got digital, it kind of turbocharged the whole thing. It's really a corporation on digital steroids does corporatism a lot faster you know, than it could before that. And that's sort of why I'm taking notice. And a lot of the folks in these companies, particularly out in Silicon Valley, really do see human beings as the problem and technology as the solution. They're truly hoping we just upload what's left of humanity to the cloud and um, get on with evolution without these biological sacks weighing us down. 
Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, first two guests on my podcast actually hit on both of those themes. First, Simon Dedeo, who's a, a data and cognitive scientist at Carnegie Mellon, talked quite eloquently about how the low friction, high speed environment brought around by online has massively accelerated uh, social evolution. And that's one of the things he studies quantitatively. And he can tell you how much faster social evolution is going. And he's a humanist at heart. And I think he regrets it. My second guest was Robin Hansen, who has written the book called M's uh, about uploading humans, right? And he takes that very seriously. And uh, he talked a lot about that from uh, what I'd call the uh, techno utopian next phase. And while it was interesting, it also, you know, makes you wonder, is that really the direction we want to go? Right. I mean, I guess if you accept extractive exponential growth and capitalism as givens of human society, then that's the only place we can go. You know, we're going to run out of air and water and all those kinds of things that support human life really soon unless we change the way we're going. And for those who believe that, you know, history is kind of unidirectional, that the only way you can go is forward and up and out and bigger, then, yeah, they need to get off the planet one way or another. But, you know, as I look at nature and other systems, I don't see things growing forever. I don't see a forest growing forever. I see it reaching its maturity and then being able to maintain a particular steady state. Even human beings, they grow and you you stop growing. That doesn't mean you're dying. It means that you're full grown and you can you can last there a while. And I think our biosphere has been able to do that for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. It's been able to sort of maintain itself at a particular size. And this notion that's really coming out of Silicon Valley that evolution is this battle for survival of the fittest and you've got to keep growing and fighting and pushing that isn't really supported by evolutionary theory. It's, if you read Darwin, evolution is the story of how species collaborate and cooperate to ensure mutual survival, not the story of how some individual beat up all the others and wins. Yeah, though, actually, evolutionary theory is perhaps a bit more nuanced than that, because at the micro level, it is about did A survive to pass on their genes or B? And does species X or group Y command a greater or lesser component of the energetics and resources uh, in a geography? But you're right, in the longer term, in natural pre-human evolution, and maybe even early human, before humans invented fire, where they were finally able to dominate the ecosystem in a decisive way, before that point, uh, nobody in nature was powerful enough to have a final victory. It couldn't even come close. It was always a co-evolutionary dynamic equilibrium where species came and went. You know, the average half-life of a species is somewhere on the order of two or three million years. Species increase their range, decrease their range based on weather, based on other species around them. So I think it's a little simplistic to say that it's cooperative, but I think it's uh, more accurate to say it produced a dynamic equilibrium with nobody ever able to win a decisive victory. Right. And you look at Silicon Valley now and it's as if they're playing a World Series of poker match, you know, (laughs) where one person's supposed to win the whole thing. And that will end up leading, you know, these monopolies end up being much more brittle than a business ecosystem with more than one player doing more than one thing. 
Yeah, that's been one of the, uh, I think, unpleasant surprises about the online world. I mean, I go way back in the online world, uh, long before the Internet. Uh, I worked for a company called The Source back in 1980. Uh, we were the first uh, online consumer uh, service. You know, I like to tell people, you know, and I'm geezing about the old good old days, which I like to do in technology, that, you know, we had most of what's on the web today. We had chat, we had uh, shopping, we had stock prices, we had news, we had bulletin boards. We had some rudimentary things that sort of were a little bit like social media, but it was character mode only, 30 characters a second and 10 bucks an hour. And people can say, why the hell would anybody do that? Well, it was the only thing out there like it. And we quickly had tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands uh, of customers, which actually you know brings me to another point you made in Team Human. Oh, by the way, before I go on to that, tell our listeners, Team Human's very interestingly structured book. It's got a hundred short chapters or sections, many of which were very sharply and eloquently written. And that's all in 215 pages. So uh, Douglas takes us through his thinking in uh, bite-sized chunks that are very nicely written. And I would uh, really recommend to our listeners that if you're interested in this topic area, this is a a great way to come up to speed uh, painlessly and in fact, enjoyably. But uh, one of the things you talked about a little bit is uh, how television was uh, one of the early crushers of social building. We retreated to our suburban houses. But then you tell us that uh, at first online seemed like it was, I'll quote you here, breaking the tyranny of top-down broadcast media. Uh, It seemed to be broken by the peer-to-peer connections and free expressions of every human node on the network. The net turned media back into a collective participatory and social landscape. And again, that was what we thought we were doing at uh, The Source and some of the other things I was involved in afterwards. We thought we were doing the good work. What went wrong? Yeah, it's interesting. It was the good work, though, wasn't it? I remember the first time I had to uh, save a file from a terminal. Actually, it wasn't the very first time it was on paper tape. But the first time I used a real a computer with real hard drives, wherever they were, I remember I had to save my file as a read-only file or a read-write file. Remember those days? Oh, absolutely. On the vaxes, that was one of the things you had to do. Okay, is this a read-only file or not? And then all of a sudden, I was like, well, wait a minute. You mean the only difference between a read-write file and a read-only file is my choice of whether to let people edit it or not. And I started to look at the world around me and say, look at all of these read-only files out there, you know, from, you know, television to money. Almost anything that was established as a read-only file in the real world was something that could just as easily be changed or written by someone else. What if we printed our own money? What if we made our own TV? What if we created our own rules? You know, is the Constitution of the U.S., is it read-only or read-write? Well, I think it's read-write, you know, by certain measures. So it kind of opened me up to that initial open-source understanding of the world. And, you know, those of us, well, at least in my era, this was late 80s, early 90s. I mean, I was the guy who showed Timothy Leary the World Wide Web for the first time. You know, and when he looked at it, he said, oh, my God, this is acid. You know? <laughs> that must have been trippy as hell. <laughs> it was. But it was as if we believed that the Internet would have as profound effect on culture as, you know, LSD did in the 60s, only you didn't have to take drugs to experience it. And I think part of the problem was that people that were using the internet were spending less money. You know, by the early 90s, some major media companies did a study and they found that the average internet connected home was watching nine hours less television a week. 
<laughs> that's, that's a problem. You know, so it became a direct competitor for commercial eyeballs. And along came Wired magazine. And Wired said, don't worry, this is not going to be bad for business. It's going to be good for business, that the Internet can grow exponentially, the same as a, a market. And that thanks to the Internet, now markets would grow exponentially forever. They called it the long boom. And they said that this was a new economic age of eternal expansion. So the internet became less about connecting people in new and strange ways and more about extracting value and growing companies by any means necessary. And it was highly cynical. And I really saw it clearest when AOL bought Time Warner. I remember the New York Times asked me to write the op-ed that day because it was still early in computer era and there weren't really tech business writer, so they called her tech culture type person like me to write it. And I wrote this piece saying, well, the fact that AOL is spending its stock to buy Time Warner means that AOL must have peaked, that they understand this is the moment to cash in their chips because they want to buy something real. And I bet you this means that the dot-com boom is about to become the dot-com bust. And the New York Times called me back, this is back before they even used email for this stuff, and they said, you're crazy. This is insane. You know, all of our business folks say that this is the beginning of the new era of Internet growth. That This means there's going to be synergy between old media and new media. You know, and AOL is going to be the biggest company in the world. Of course, I turned out to be right. But um, it was amazing how difficult it was for people to see what was going on, how kind of cynical the whole dot-com boom was. And although they've come back now and are basically growing in ways that don't require them to earn cash, it's just, you know, their, their stock is their product. And as long as the government prints money for us to invest, there'll be more money invested in these things. But really, we're not looking at the triumph of new technologies over old. We're looking at the triumph of uh, highly capitalized companies with no employees over uh, traditional business. Yeah, I remember those uh, dot-com days very well. I was uh, actually CEO of one of the uh, dot-com companies, Network Solutions, and we ran the domain name system in those days, and we were a very profitable business, and I was, uh, frankly, very happy to have sold the company in March 2000. Uh, yeah, perfect. Right. The perfect moment. It's interesting, though. It's a whole other story, but I was always interested in the relationship between Network Solutions and ICANN, you know, and how Network Solutions, which really owned, as far as I understood, the entirety of domain name registration at the beginning, how it kind of ceded some control to this kind of international consortium of people kind of led by Esther Dyson to regulate how that whole industry happened. It was a really complicated journey that we went through to figure out how to legislate names. And now I guess it's completely open. You can I can have Douglas Rushkoff if I figure that out, right? Not quite. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that. I was the guy who negotiated the deal uh, that ceded the power of network solutions to ICANN. And I was the lead negotiator on our side. I had some help from some other folks, including a brilliant lawyer named David Johnson, who I like to describe sometimes as the James Madison of the internet. And uh, you know, my history actually on that one was quite interesting. I was not involved with network solutions until very late in the game. I did a 
a number of other online companies. Prior to going to Network Solutions, I was the CTO of uh, what's now Thomson Reuters. In those days, Thomson. And, you know, I was actually very happy there. It was a great company, good people. And I got basically an offer that I chose not to refuse from Network Solutions. And uh, it was frankly a bit of a turnaround, even though a very profitable business. It had all kinds of problems, some of the worst customer service you've ever seen in your life. But the biggest problem, which they assured me was not a problem, but as soon as I got in, I realized it was, was their relations with the government were about at the breaking point. This uh, monopoly power to run the domain name system actually came from a grant of authority from the U.S. government, initially National Science Foundation. Then it was transferred to the uh, Department of Commerce. And our law team had a reasonable argument that it had transferred to us in perpetuity. There was, however, an equally sound and, in my view, better argument that at the end of the contract in 2000, the Commerce Department could take it away if they wanted to. And so there was this huffing and puffing and arm wrestling. Interestingly, I'm convinced that the reason that was never resolved before I got there, which was late in the day, June 1999, was because all the players had vested interests in their reputation in the Washington scene. Uh, Network Solutions majority shareholder at the time was SAIC, this kind of mysterious big old beltway bandit, right? And they couldn't piss off the government too much. And, you know, there was all these greasy lobbyists. It was disgusting. Me, a techie, I didn't give two shits about who I pissed off, right? I fairly famously testified before Congress and intentionally put on my Dr. Strangelove act, right? And uh, that may have been what broke the logjam because Commerce Department got several phone calls uh, the next day saying, Settle with this dude. No telling what he might do. Blow up the internet. Exactly. I actually had a war room which had eight strategies of which one of the most extreme was again this was a legal reading of our rights uh, that even if they took away our contract we still owned all the domain names so they could give the ability to populate it to somebody else but they'd have to start fresh so we uh, thought about this theory of moving the uh, company to Bermuda getting a 50 year tax holiday from Bermuda and operating uh, as an independent not associated with the US government domain system. Uh, that was our extreme war fighting strategy number eight. But having been a longtime student of military history and military strategy, I said, eh, stakes are too big, risks are too large. That would be uh, a bad idea, probably. However, it did provide a credible threat. So we retreated to strategy number six, which was huff and puff and then settle, right? So make people think you have, uh, you know, pocket aces, which we sort of did, but they were too risky to actually play. Uh, be a bit of an asshole and then enter in good faith negotiations, which we did. And, you know, over uh, about six weeks in late August through the end of September, we actually uh, negotiated all that stuff. And you're right, it did establish kind of a law of the internet in an interesting kind of way. And having been a longtime netizen, I made sure to put a fair amount of my negotiating into things I thought were good for the internet. Uh, for instance, deep in the bowels of the uh, documents that set up ICANN, uh, there's language which uh, David Johnson and I insisted go in there that ICANN may not make any decisions about the use of domain names with respect to their content. 
you know, they can regulate things like domain squatting and things of that sort, uh, but they are explicitly banned from in any way managing anything with respect to content. And yeah, I think that's been an important shield to protect at least that part of the internet from this new storm of censorship, which seems to be uh, up and coming anyway. Let's get back to the evolution of what the nets have done to our society. You know, I look back to the early days, which I think we both have a sense actually did a lot of good. I mean, I was quite active on CompuServe in the uh, uh, mid eighties while I was building some entrepreneurial companies that did online stuff for Wall Street and corporate America. I was also a hobbyist on CompuServe and there was hundreds, soon thousands that were called special interest groups pre-internet. This was the walled garden world. People had very obscure hobbies. You know, I'm a Packard enthusiast. I get together with a bunch of other Packard enthusiasts or, you know, I'm interested in uh, data compression. And there was a group on uh, CompuServe for data compression. And it really allowed, you know, thin interests from around the United States and then eventually around the world to find themselves. And it was really a great thing. And I thought there was nothing bad about it at all. However, here's an interesting difference. In those days, you had to pay and there was little or no advertising. The rules were that there were no advertising. I mean, you had to sign a virtual agreement saying you were going to use the Internet for research purposes only. So this is an important distinction. I think something you got a little wrong in your book. Before the Internet became the big thing, there were a, a whole series of online services that were not part of the Internet. You know, CompuServe, The Source, AOL, and they, they were not subject to that. They could have had advertising if they wanted, and they were obviously commercial and they sold stuff. So that rule against doing business on the internet did not apply to this earlier 80s uh, walled garden version of online. But I think the distinction there is that they were not advertising supported. They were paid for typically by the hour by their users. And I think the dynamic there is quite interesting. You know, in a paid by the hour service, the operator wants you to stay on, but you don't want to stay on too long because you have to pay, right? And so the tendency to hijack your eyeballs in purpose is not really there because, you know, 10 bucks an hour, you know, I'm, I'm only going to budget maybe uh, 10 hours a, a month online. Once we got to this post 2000 era, maybe 2005, where the underlying costs of systems and connectivity got sufficiently low that services could be offered for free and then advertising supported, I put forth the hypothesis that that's where things changed, uh, that now the system operators were in an ecosystem where it was to their incentive to hijack your eyeballs for as long as possible. And you, the consumer, didn't object because it was free. And that's what set loose the uh, uh, social virus that took what had been this perhaps very positive phenomenon, the nets, and turned it into what it's become today. Yeah, well, the dynamic reverse. You know, I remember when Wired Magazine uh, retrieved that old phrase, uh, attention economy, that we were moving from a world where these platforms provided content to users to a world where they provided users to companies, you know, where the human beings became the object, the content, the thing being operated on. And right, the unit of time online was called the eyeball hour. And how many eyeball hours could you extract from the user by making your content as sticky as possible? So now it's a matter of technology working on people rather than people using technology. And you know, then BJ Fogg starts his laboratory at Stanford, his Captology laboratory, looking at how to 
take the techniques of behavioral finance and port them over along with Las Vegas slot machine algorithms into your social media feed in order to addict people. And that's really the reversal that my whole team human thing is about looking at, well, wait a minute, we're doing technology to people. We're trying to optimize human beings for this techno economy, for the digital economy, rather than optimizing technology for human flourishing. And if we keep going that way, um, it's going to be really dark. We've already got people, you know, voting against their best interests and getting addicted to things and becoming incoherent and trying to ape their machines and dividing their attention between all sorts of things and becoming incapable of making eye contact and having real world social relationships with each other. You know, and that's all to the advantage of these very short term business plans of social media platforms, but, you know, really bad for the long term health of our society. It's trending that way, at least if we look at the measures. But I would also say that at the same time, uh, that ability to find people, I mean, that's one of your themes in Team Human, find your fellow humans, right? Uh, I frankly find it still happening on the net. Yeah, and particularly for those of us who have, uh, like you were saying before, a, a, a thin community. In other words, uh, someone who's got a rare disease and if they can find the other 100 people with it in America, they're going to be online. They're not going to be in your town. Or the other people who have, you know, a 1964 MG and love to talk about that. That's a great thing to find the others who aren't there. But, you know, when, as we all see now, when you see two middle school kids texting to each other as they walk down the street next to each other, you're thinking, wait a minute. There's a problem. They are the pathological restaurant scene where there's uh, four people sitting at a dinner table, all of them holding their phones up. Exactly. You, you found the others. So now be with them rather than uh, hiding from them. Every year, I, I've been teaching now at CUNY in New York, at City University of New York for four or five years now. Every semester, I have kids coming up on the first day of class with a note from their doctor saying, you know, please excuse Johnny from class participation because, you know, he has a social anxiety disorder. And, and I can't think that that's coincidental that the number of kids who literally refuse to talk during class now and can't do presentations, um, it's because they haven't been socialized. Yeah, that's a, a very interesting trend. And we will be reaping the uh, uh, the whirlwind from that one for a while, I'm afraid. You know, I'll give you another, though, way that personally, I try to use the internet and I encourage others, love to get your thoughts on this, uh, is when I think about the net communities, and as I say, I'm still building many meaningful relationships for my online connections. And I'll give myself a little plug here. Uh, one of the better ones is a group on Facebook that I co-founded uh, with Jordan Greenhall called Rally Point Alpha. And it's uh, for people who understand what the issues are and want to meet other people like themselves. And I've made many real world friends that way. And, but anyway, this is my trick is I look at online connections as what I call weak links and they're not to be a replacement for strong links, strong links, meaning mostly person to person interactions. Uh, so I try to use these weak links to find people I want to have strong links with. And so whenever I'm traveling, which I do a moderate amount, I uh, put messages out into the world so that people I have weak links with know that I'm going to be in their town and we can get together and have dinner or get together for a one-on-one -on -one or have breakfast. And uh, when you combine the two, I think you get better than either because the strong links, especially for people who are physically distributed, are 
are pretty expensive to maintain, while weak links are very inexpensive. And if you combine the two together, I think you get a synergistic result, uh, which is better than either by itself. Right. The funny thing is, though, in the digital age, for some reason, I guess the bias of these technologies and that sort of yes, no polarizing one zero quality of the systems and the architectures we've been using make people reluctant to see balance as a possibility. It's like they say, oh, so are you for the Internet or you're against the Internet? You're for real life against real life. It's like, wait a minute. It's like, well, you're for capitalism or you're for socialism. You're, you know what I mean? You're for profit or you're for sharing. It's like, why is it an either or? Why can't I... I love the internet. I still love the internet, even though Mark Zuckerberg and his minions are doing nasty, nasty things with it. I see the possibility of creating new kinds of connections and conversations and collaboration are still so inspiring at the same time that I see the pitfalls of using the internet improperly as a tool for social control or or intimidation or uh, election interference. And likewise, you know, the real world... I get it. It's scary. It's strange. You know, <laughs> some people would rather stay inside and not meet any stranger. Don't want their kids outside where they're going to get lured into automobiles or something. But the real world is a really important, wonderful place, too. And I think that the most important thing we've gotten to really is just what you're saying is that people have to sort of reacquaint themselves with balance, with holding even opposite opinions at the same time. They might both be appropriate. It's not, it doesn't even have to be a purple state versus a red state or a blue state, but what about a red-blue state? A state where you hold, I see both sides. I see both of these conflicting perspectives. And that's, again, that to me is what human beings can do that so far nothing else can, which is really hold on to and sustain these paradoxes and see the underlying dynamics. It's, you know, you want to get spiritual. It's the old, you know, yin yang, you know, that, that you experience these seeming opposites as a living dynamic and they can work in balance and harmoniously rather than some either or ultimatum. Yeah, I've been pushing that line as well for quite a while. In fact, I wrote a uh, essay, which I published on Medium earlier this year called Reclaiming Our Cognitive Sovereignty, which tells the story of how I realized that my smartphone uh, was a dangerously addictive device for a person like myself and how I decided to get rid of my smartphone, but how I also engineered around not having a smartphone to not give up very much functionality that I thought was critically important to me. And, and I, in, in that article, encouraged other people to think about an inventory, how addicted they were to their smartphone and were there workarounds for the things they used it for? And could they reclaim their cognitive sovereignty? And I quoted a fair amount of serious academic research on how even if your smartphone is turned off, if you can see it, it's reducing your attention span, which is an amazing thing. But, you know, I'm not the only one writing things like this. Tristan Harris has been working this vein, Joe Edelman and some others. And yet, you know, this idea of balance doing both, you know, we love the internet. As I say in my uh, essay, uh, I still spend a lot of time on the internet, but I do it only when I'm in my office for a limited period of time each day. And then I go out and have my real life the rest of the day. So why is that so hard for people? I mean, it's just like, uh, you know, yes, eating fast food is fun once in a while, but uh, we don't want to do it every day. Why do we seem to not be able to achieve balance in our use of these things? 
I mean, there's so many ways to look at it. Partly it's because we're moving into a, what they would have called a spectacle society where everything is, you know, bigger, louder, faster. And there's a kind of a winner takes all logic that's pervading so many of our cultural institutions where you're becoming the American idol or the president or the, the soul, like we were talking about the poker game, you know, the guy who gets all the chips on the table, the Jeff Bezos who establishes the complete monopoly, the Elon Musk who wins and goes to the moon or Mars or wherever they're going to go with their trillions of dollars. There is a winner takes all kind of a power law dynamic affecting things where you even look on iTunes or something and you'll see that over time, you know, since the 70s and 80s, there are fewer pop stars making now all the money and many, many pop stars who <laughs> sell one record each or none. So the feedback loops in interactive spaces, the way uh, you know, the leaderboards and other uh, feedback mechanisms end up turning winners into super winners and everybody else into the you know supposed long tail to maybe someday reap a little bit of benefit. And I feel like that dynamic, it ends up being pervasive in society too, that, you know, you've got to be the home run billionaire Mark Zuckerberg or nothing. If you get investment from, you know, Y Combinator or Union Square Ventures or any of these places, you're not allowed to just be a sustainable, great company. You have to grow exponentially. You've got to become, you know, their thousand X return. And uh, if that's the only choice, then, you know, then people start looking at the world that way. It's not enough to have a mom and pop shop. I've got to have the shop, you know, the generic one size fits all global uh, solution. Of course, though, that's only a tiny number of people. The number of people who actually uh, get funded to build a company with venture capital is, you know, a couple of thousand a year. Uh, how does that value become pervasive across our society? You know, how does it impact a, you know, 23-year-old who, uh, you know, has just graduated from college and is working as a barista at the local coffee shop? It's the only mythology of success that we're really pushing anymore. You know, the, the idea of, of limited success or having a sustainable career is not the dream. You know, that's it's funny. I remember when the movie The Social Network came out. And I know the guy that wrote it is Aaron Sorkin. We went to high school together. And when it first came out, people thought, oh, wow, this is really rough on Zuckerberg. People are going to be, you know, he might sue or uh, people are going to see it as really negative. And young people saw him as the hero. <laughs> they thought this is great. I mean, I still see kids on the subway with um, uh, T-shirts for, you know, Al Pacino and Scarface, which is really funny, you know, because it's this uh, Italian guy playing a Cuban drug lord that's become a, a, an urban hero. It's not It's not really a, a healthy set of role models or, you know, people have Donald Trump as a role model now, you know, which is a style of winning and leadership. But, you know, not when I would hope for, you know, my kids to emulate. Well, on the other hand, uh, you know, intentionally flipping the finger to the world's got a long tradition. I'm, you know, I'm a, uh, you know, a little bit older generation. I remember when people wore Che Guevara and Mao T-shirts, right, just to piss their parents off. 
I know. I well, I I, <laughs> I love when I see uh, you know well-meaning social justice warriors wearing T-shirts of people whose whose actual uh, histories they haven't researched. It's like just read the Wikipedia article before you put on that particular shirt and decide if that's you know what you want to be celebrating. Yeah, Mal probably the number one mass murderer of all times. You know, Shay was kind of small time, but he kind of seemed to be into torture and stuff. Definitely not a good guy. And so you know maybe kids uh, wearing uh, scarf face t-shirts are of that same uh, genre. Anything that pisses off your parents uh, when you're 17 years old is what you pretty much want to do, I think. Anyway, let's. Uh, this has been a very good uh, introduction to kind of the big picture ideas that you presented in Team Human. Let's drill in a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about memes. You know, you talk quite a bit about memes. In fact, you mentioned memes 33 times in Team Human, but you use it in a somewhat curious way. At least I thought it was a little bit curious. Uh, you know, per Dawkins, who invented the term meme, uh, a meme's a reproducible unit of cultural information. And I would suggest that many memes are good. For instance, when your father teaches you how to bait a fish hook, that's a meme because you'll probably pass it on to your friends and hopefully your kids. You know, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you is a meme. Yet you paint memes pretty darkly. I'm going to quote a couple little sections here. That's because memes do not compete for dominance by appealing to our intellect, our compassion, or anything to do with our humanity. They compete to trigger our most automatic impulses. Memes work by provoking fight or flight reactions. Those sorts of responses are highly individualistic. They're not pro-social. They're anti-social. Not that the technique was ever appropriate, even practiced benevolently. The danger with viruses is that they are constructed to bypass the neocortex. Again, that's uh, what you wrote in Team Human about memes. And, you know, how does that compare to uh, my dad teaching me how to put a worm on a fish hook or the golden rule? Well, I think they're a little different. I mean, yeah, Dawkins came up with memes and I was interested in them. But what I became interested in was then, well, how do memes transmit? If genes move from person to person sexually, how do memes move? How else does genetic material move between organisms? And that's when I came up with what's a now kind of famous idea, the, the idea of viral media, that while genes pass through sex, memes pass through viruses. And I got interested in this idea that a media virus would be memes or sort of ideological code wrapped in a protein shell of media. And I used the Rodney King tape, which was a black guy getting beaten by cops in Los Angeles that someone captured on a camcorder tape, which was like digital video, but on little tape. And it was such a provocative image that it ended up, you know, broadcast all over uh, cable television, news channels, and then regular TV really overnight. And it was, as I saw it, it was the first media virus, the first thing that spread sort of out of anybody's control. And it spread for those two reasons. One, it was a provocative new use of media, which was the camcorder tape capturing something. And second, the ideas inside triggered a kind of a, a cultural immune response of, oh my gosh, you look, you know, white guys are beating a black guy and police brutality and race relations and urban decay and all those sort of unresolved social issues were being stimulated by this virus. And I was very positive about memes. As positive about viral media as I was about the internet because I saw it as a way for sort of countercultural agendas to trickle up through our society. Again, you know, the gatekeepers of traditional media weren't going to be able to control what we see 
and the important issues from at the time, you know, AIDS and and race relations to drug law and prison overcrowding, all these issues that weren't being discussed in mainstream media would now be passed around thanks to the internet and interactive media and mimetic transmission and all. But, you know, I wrote this book, Media Virus, and it ended up being bought mostly by marketers who looked at memes you know, as, oh, this is a way we can advertise. So they really saw memetics, and I don't blame them, as a new form of propaganda. How can we, you know, get these ideas to spread? And we're not talking about, you know, the simple mimesis of a child learning how to fish from his father. That's direct. We're talking about cynically released pictures and slogans on the internet designed to spread by any means necessary. And the way to do that is not to give people information they need or something they care about. It's not to elicit their sense of connection. Although I guess little cat memes maybe do that a little bit. But the things that really spread, as we learned in the last election, are the most provocative kind of, like uh, you read from the book, that kind of fight or flight adrenaline response, that survival need. Oh my gosh, what is that? It's kind of like the same way a car crash will attract your attention faster than a flower. A car crash-like meme will provoke more of a response. It'll get someone who agrees with it to pass it on, and even people who don't agree with it to pass it on, to say, oh my God, look at what Trump just said. You know, in the in the last election cycle in 2016, it was progressives and liberals who retweeted Trump more than um, <laughs> you know, than right wing people. So your argument then be that the coupling of a meme to give it virality is to some of the uh, darker and more primitive aspects of our unconscious personalities. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that the people who are using Facebook memes to promote, you know, far right or other extremist things or hate speech and doing it so successfully are manipulating people in the same way that the early sticky internet websites sought to manipulate people. They're doing that same thing where it's technology operating people rather than people operating technology. That the kid opens his Instagram account and scrolls through and he is being acted upon by hundreds or even thousands of propagandists attempting to trigger a response in him. They're treating him like a rat in a maze rather than a creative human being. Though, of course, not just the right. I mean, uh, I try my hand occasionally at an anti-Trump meme or two and I had one that uh, went pretty viral. So, you know, everyone's able to play the meme game. Why would we think the net effect is bad rather than the idea of the marketplace of ideas, in this case, the marketplace of memes? Uh, Maybe the good memes uh, beat the bad memes. I mean, why would we think that would not be the case? Well, because memetics tends to occur, at least when it's happening in instant little pictures with words on them on an Instagram or Facebook account, they're trying to speak more to the brainstem than the frontal lobe. You know, the way to get people to click on something is not, it just takes too long to appeal to their real thinking, to their heart, to their bonding emotions. That's not where people act the fastest. At least this is what 
Facebook has learned, if you want to get people to click on something, make it scary. Show them a picture of their guts opened up or worms crawling around in a brain or Jewish stars and swastikas and the things that people will click on impulsively and without thinking are going to be those sort of lower level triggering things. They are going to be more the car crashes than, you know, solutions for global warming. That's interesting. I like that insight. If we think about the network as a series of nodes and messages passing across the nodes, if there's a strong preference for kind of simplistic and visceral material to be replicated, then we will see more such on the network and that will swamp uh, more nuanced discussions. Right. And then that ends up feeding back into the real world, you know, and and, and and I'm scared to think of what it's like for a kid who was raised exclusively on that and has never sat and listened to even an evening broadcast of the news, much less an hour of NPR. Yeah, remember, we used to think that, you know, the NBC News Hour was like the most reductionist, simplistic crap imaginable. Now that's considered high class discourse. I remember right when, you know, Neil Postman was writing uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I love that book. I gave that book and recommended that book a hundred times at least, right? And we thought that was the bottom, right? And now that's our uh, standard of something that's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, I remember the moment when it was kind of shifting was back when Bill Clinton did that Jennifer Flowers affair or something. And like the National Star wrote about it before the mainstream news. And then Jerry Springer came on, was doing all of his kind of trash TV And we were looking at it and that's all of a sudden, that's when Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw look like the classy guys (laughs) in in a really uh, strange and devolving news space. That's actually a little scary to think about it. So uh, back to your hypothesis about the linkage of memes to the reptilian brain, we appear to be in a ratchet driving discourse towards the reptilian level where even the banality of 1980s TV looks much better. Very interesting conversation. Let's move on now to perhaps the other end of the discussion, which is uh, subtle and important questions about why we are where we are. One of the uh, pieces in the book that I found very interesting and it resonated very strongly with me was your section on figure and grounds, particularly uh, the distinction you made between capitalism and commerce, markets versus money. You know, these are really important things that unfortunately have disappeared from the public discourse until about 1914. People say, why then? That's when the Federal Reserve was established. You know, the issue of money was a big issue in politics, was talked about regularly. You know, Lincoln developed greenbacks, which was a very innovative uh, variety of money, which threatened the power of the traditional finance sources. Bimetallism, you know, silver and gold together was a big deal. In fact, William Jennings Bryant got the nomination to be president of the United States on the Democratic ticket with his uh, cross of gold speech. It's hard to imagine that a discourse about bimetallism uh, would have been the biggest political issue of the day. You know, and as you point out, money matters a lot. The institutional structure of our money. Whatever happened to that discussion? It is interesting, you know, and that's the thing that's so interesting to me about money is I feel like money is an operating system. And, you know, when you have a bunch of competing operating systems, then you're aware that you're 
picking an OS. You know, if every computer in the world just had Windows on it, then we wouldn't even know there's such a thing as an operating system. You know, it would just be, oh, that's a computer. So I think that today, even, you know, the bankers and the Federal Reserve participants I've spoken to don't seem to have any memory of the history of money. I mean, some of them understand what Nixon did, taking us off the gold reserve, but they don't really understand that money has always been fungible, that we've invented different monies at different periods of history with different biases, you know, to promote different kinds of economic activity. They really just know this one kind of money and the various uh, pulleys they have on that kind of money, you know, whether it's a money supply or interest rates. And what I got interested in was really the way this one ended up being so embedded with its current biases that it's, you know, a fiat currency that's loaned out at interest and has to be paid back, you know, and you have to pay back more money than you borrowed. So the whole idea of the economy having to grow is not really based on the human need for growth, but the need to pay back more money than you borrowed. It's part of the OS. And then what happens is we move into increasing abstractions. So, all right, originally we developed money so that people could trade in the marketplace. That was the point. So that if you had chickens and I had shoes and you need shoes and I don't need chickens, we still have a way to trade. So we use these almost poker chips, but the poker chips don't have so much value in themselves. It's just to keep track of the transaction. And the problem was is people used these poker chips at the you know local markets in late medieval Europe. They were becoming less and less dependent on the aristocracy. So the aristocracy was getting poor. The peasants were becoming the middle class, and they made all of these transactions illegal. They said, no, now you have to borrow money from a central treasury at interest in order to transact. So money became a way of extracting value from all these people who are trading rather than creating a utility for people to be able to trade. And that's sort of the essential reversal. So where money started out as a way to help people trade, money became a way to profit off the fact that people are trading. Then you get, you know, the stock market, which then wants to make money off those businesses. And you end up with today where we have a derivatives market, which makes money off the stock market, which makes money off transactions or businesses. And the derivatives exchange, this abstraction of the stock market has gotten so big that the New York Stock Exchange was actually purchased by its own derivatives exchange. So what is that? <laughs> so the derivatives have bought the market. So the stock market, which was already an abstraction of the real market, has been consumed by its own abstraction. Those are the kinds of reversals that I'm looking at. With money, it's really easy to see. Or say with education, where public education was really invented as compensation for the worker. It was so that the coal miner could come home at the end of the day and have enough education to be able to read a great novel and appreciate it or uh, read the newspaper and participate meaningfully in democracy. And now education isn't about, you know, dignifying the life of the worker. Education is about preparing someone for work. The principals of our high schools and presidents of our colleges are visiting with CEOs to find out what skills do you need our kids to have when they graduate? As if the purpose of the school is to train people 
for the corporation, some externalization of job training. And again, the figure in the ground reversed. So that the very person that education was supposed to be serving is now the person who's serving education. And the worst example, the one that I grew up with, you know, the tools that we've been talking about, this internet, which was about extending human autonomy and imagination and connection is now used to do the very opposite. We are not the figure of the internet. We are the ground. You don't use your smartphone. Your smartphone uses you. Every time you swipe on your smartphone, it gets smarter about you and you get dumber about it. And if we want to get smart about our smartphone and open it up and find out how these algorithms are working, we can't. They're protected in black boxes because they're proprietary. We're not even allowed to know what the phone is doing to us or how it's doing it. Corey Doctorow, who was on an earlier episode, uh, has a very interesting idea, which he called adversarial something or other. Adversarial interoperability. There we go. Yes. And I, when I had that conversation, I said, yeah, it reminds me of uh, lots of hacks I used to do where I'd take a technology and abuse it terribly and use it for something else. Right. And uh, he made a very interesting point in his most recent novella collection about how uh, the increasing wrapping everything either in physical security or intellectual property is really a force of tyranny. Yeah. There's a beautiful story in there about a person struggling with her toaster. That was a beautiful, a beautiful book. Anyway, a couple comments here. We talk about, you know, the hijacking of education. That goes way back to John Dewey, right? If you read his serious scholarly writings on, uh, which were in many ways the basis for the modern public school system, you know, by the 20s, he was arguing that really what public school is about was to build in conformism, obedience, clock watching, et cetera, to prepare people for jobs on assembly lines. It was this philosophy of what they call Taylorism, stopwatch management, which was one thing with a stopwatch on an assembly line floor. And it's another when you're doing it to, you know, Amazon mechanical Turks, you know, these little human beings getting a penny for a click, you know, to do jobs that it's just entirely more oppressive even than the worst of what we imagine on the factory floor. And of course, you know, as the friction disappears, which we thought we were doing the good work as we made the friction disappear, it makes Taylorism go to the nth degree. You know, you mentioned Mechanical Turk. I play with Mechanical Turk for a couple of days a few years back. I think I made $13 for about six hours worth of work, came out to two bucks an hour and probably could got a little better over time. But it seemed to me unlikely I could even get to the minimum wage, right? Because this is out over on a worldwide basis with nobody monitoring things like the minimum minimum wage don't apply. Right. You're an independent contractor. You're just working for yourself. You know, and (laughs) and as long as there's no jobs, more and more people are going to be doing that. All right. Let's hop back to one of my favorite topics that you started to talk about. And then we got distracted on education, et cetera, which is money. Money is key. Uh, I suspected it when I was reading your book, but hearing you talk, it's clear you're a money nerd just like me, right? In our social operating system, it strikes me that money is the kernel. And I often say that if you really want to understand what makes our society work today, realize that at the core, in the kernel, it's all about short term, meaning three years or less, money on money return, right? That's what drives people's behavior. That's how corporations structure themselves the way they do, why the strategies they pursue happen, why M&A happens, etc. But 
Money is something we created, as you point out, right? Uh, the fact that it has been allowed to disappear and we don't look at these alternatives is really a fundamental uh, loss of design space in developing our social operating system. And in fact, I put out my own suggestion for an alternative money, which I call dividend money. And there's a YouTube up called Dividend Money, an alternative to the central banker managed fractional reserve banking money, which if people want to uh, be put to sleep or if they happen to be fascinated by money, I'd recommend. But again, it's really almost eerie how we share some visions on this stuff convergently. One of the things I make a big point up that you do as well is that, you know, our current money system is forced to grow by the fact that it's issued as debt, but needs to be used to pay the interest. But nobody pays any attention to the velocity of money. When in reality, one could design a monetary system where the money supply was static or grew relatively slowly. And instead we manage the velocity. And I lay out a mechanism to do that. And not only does it not then have this death rush for exponential growth, it also ought not have as many ups and downs. In fact, uh, one of our problems with our fractional reserve banking system is that the most significant pressure is pro-cyclical. So when an economy is growing, banks make more loans, which grows the money supply and essentially adds gasoline to the fire. That's really what both the dot-com bubble and the real estate bust were about. But then when things are on the way down, they start calling in loans and not giving out loans and the money supply actually contracts. seems to me a very bad design. We could easily design a monetary system where the money supply supply itself is not impacted by economic activity or by the level of debt outstanding, but is managed as a entirely separate mechanism. And again, I think this is an area that people really need to think about a lot. Yep. The problem is, I mean, the financial industry that's grown around uh, money as it exists wouldn't have a way to make the kind of money they do with a money system that wasn't there for them. (laughs) We have a money system that supports money management more than it does a real economy. And it's going to be a little, uh, uh, well, we'll see exactly how a money transition happens. It's funny, I'm going just now, I'm going to be going up to Bretton Woods, where they had the original conference after World War II, where they pegged the global currencies to the dollar. They're doing a 75th anniversary of Bretton Woods. And I'm going to be speaking about what happened then and maybe how we have to revisit, you know, we have to revisit the policies that they developed at that time. And there's a lot of people doing, uh, you know, some interesting blockchains and other technologies, other money systems. But everyone's going to be there, head of the IMF, head of the World Bank, Steve Mnuchin, uh, Peter Thiel. Um, So I'm interested to see uh, what kind of discussions people are capable of having now that I think it's becoming rather public knowledge that our money system is almost the central problem, both in terms of social unrest, climate change, and this growth addicted business landscape that we're inhabiting right now. Yep. Now, one good thing, it's interesting, Bitcoin and the similar crypto ledger based currencies have unfortunately gotten everybody focused on that one form of alternative money. And frankly, I think Bitcoin is even worse than central banker monitored fractional reserve banking. However, it has had the useful function of alerting people to two facts. One, that a monetary system is a human artifact. And secondly, it is actually legal in most countries and definitely in the United States to build alternative money systems. So, 
hopefully when people's uh, obsession with public ledger, non-transparent money starts to dissipate, maybe some of that energy will come back into thinking about these questions. As you say, what is it that we really ought to do about money to make it work for our society and not just work for the lords of finance? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, it's got to be a slow and careful unwind. You know, when I look at previous examples of how alternative money systems entered, you know, general use, it tends to be during depressions. You know, it was during the Great Depression in America when we saw local currencies and farm-based currencies crop up, at least for a while. And the same in Europe. It was, you know, after World War One when, uh, you know, a depressed Germany started to use the Gessel and these other monetary systems. So, I'm hoping it doesn't have to happen just because there's no regular money for people. But I'm supposing if and when the next recession hits, that instead of simply bailing out Goldman Sachs with more printed money, we could distribute some of the basics for how a community can accomplish a whole lot of what it needs without involving federal currency. You know, if you've got people with needs and people with skills, they can begin transacting, even if they don't have a way of borrowing, you know, monopoly currency from the central bank. Yep. In fact, here in our little small city of Stanton, Virginia, we have a time bank called Our Economy, Our as in H-O-U-R. And uh, it is a time bank where people can swap their skills for need at a one-for-one basis where a human hour is the unit of currency. Frankly, it's a relatively small thing right this moment, but we do think that in an emergency, uh, this is something that could come in and step forward and save the day when our financial system locks up. Yeah, in Greece, when the um, European Union wouldn't give Greece any more money uh, and they went on super austerity, you started to see all sorts of uh, favor banks and time dollars pop up online so that people could get their basic needs met just with other people. Yep. The other one that's amazing and for people who are interested in this is well worth researching and is perhaps the biggest recent appearance of alternative money was in Argentina after the banking crisis around 2000. Hundreds of currencies emerged as like the kind you described, market currencies, uh, local currencies of various sorts. There was even people had set up informal inter-currency exchanges, etc. And uh, for a while it kept Argentina from starving. Now, of course, they all folded as soon as the banking system restarted, but perhaps a uh, severe enough economic dislocation, it will be the opportunity for us to really seriously, uh, uh, you know, sort of rethink our money system. And that's, I think, very interesting. Let's switch now to what will probably be our last topic. Just an amazing amount of interesting ideas we've talked about here and about how the world could be made better. But how do we do it? You know, in one of your previous books, which is uh, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, you talked about social operating systems. And I believe you uh, mentioned it 32 times and you were pretty explicit about, hey, you know, we own the social operating system, much less about social operating systems in the new book. How is it that we as humans can possibly get together to get our hands on uh, making the social operating system work for humans and not be this self-perpetuating money-on-money return monster, which is consuming all it sees. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, in in the book before this, it was way more about the economy and the sort of the business plans of these companies. And I was offering a lot of ways that people could do startups or investment or tech development and economic development 
along different principle. You know, it had policy hints for uh, whoever, Elizabeth Warren or somebody in there and investing hints for the folks in Silicon Valley and, you know, ways to develop more sustainable, longer term circulatory business plans that didn't depend on, you know, eventually every tech company becoming a holding company like Google becoming Alphabet and going into finance instead of tech. So it was really practical in that way. In Team Human, I'm almost going back even further and saying that in order in order for people to develop solidarity and community and collective power, kind of the prerequisite for all of that is basic human rapport. You need to be able to look at somebody else in the eyes and do basic social bonding. The painstakingly evolved mechanisms we have for social cohesion are being really intentionally thwarted by the internet. You know, you don't make eye contact. Even if you're on Skype or something, you can't see if somebody's pupils are getting larger to take you in or smaller. You can't see the micromotions of their head. You can't sync up your breathing with the other person. And because you can't do all of those things, you know, your mirror neurons never fire in your brain. The oxytocin doesn't go through your blood. And your body and mind don't really know whether you you've bonded, whether that person agrees with you. You don't get the positive reinforcement you need to really move on in a meaningful way in that relationship. So I'm asking people, you know, I keep saying just find the others, to find other people and connect with them in real life in small places. Even the word conspire and conspiracy, all that really means is breathe together. Spire is breathe, con is with. Breathe together with other people as the first step towards forging the solidarity that we're going to need to really take back the world from tech companies that, you know, meaningfully or, or intentionally or not, are isolating and alienating us from one another in order to control us. That's what your phone does. That's what Facebook does is try to lock your eyeballs onto the screen and get you connecting as much as you can with people through the computer rather than in real life. And our local reality where your body actually lives, this world that is scaled to the human rather than scaled for economic growth is the world that we actually exist in, you know, and if we want to save it, we're going to have to inhabit it more fully. Yeah, we'll have to, you know, strengthen our strong links, right? That's what we were evolved for. That's who we really are. Mm-hmm. And all of these other weak links are really there to support these strong links, not the other way around. I love that. If we could get that one message out alone, that the internet's a powerful and wonderful thing for deciding who and where and when to have strong links. But the real purpose of this is to enrich in our life of strong links, doing real things with real people. And that's great. And I think it would help move us in the right direction. However, you and I both know it's nowhere near enough. Okay. We as humans feel better and are less demented from uh, being manipulated by social media. But That doesn't provide us any levers to change, say, the money supply or the rules of the road on social media. You know, how do we go from us feeling better as humans to, you know, being able to capture uh, some levers of institutional power to actually make changes in some of these areas? You know, I'll give you one kind of interesting and curious example, which actually speaks to this idea of strong, weak links, which is the five star movement in Italy. 
now the largest political party in Italy, established literally by a comedian. I did some research on it. How'd they do this, right? And their magic mechanism for forging weak link, strong link combination was meetup.com. There were many, many, many meetups happening on a regular basis in small, medium, and larger cities all over Italy, where the uh, concept of the five-star movement was discussed and people were recruited and the beginnings of work was done to start a party. Candidates were recruited. Most of them had no experience in politics. And we ended up with this uh, very curious new party started by a comedian now being part of the government of Italy. Frankly, Five Star, I'm not quite sure what they stand for. I've read their proposals. They're a de novo uh, political movement. They're, and unfortunately, they're associated with a moderately strong right party in the government of Italy. But nonetheless, they're an example of from the ground up, from nurturing strong and weak links together, some people were able to actually build a mechanism to get to the levels of power. Yeah, and I was there. I mean, I was part of the founding of Meetup, actually. We thought it up after a talk I did where I first quoted the find the others idea where I was saying, look, the internet, you know, the internet should not be about people meeting online. The internet should be about people figuring out where they can go meet in real life. And Scott Hefferman was there, founder of Meetup, and he said, Doug, let's do it. Um, so yeah, I was a, you know, one of the original advisors for Meetup. I think that's a great example. You know, Meetup and a modern one would be, uh, you know, something like Lumio or a lot of the companies being started in New Zealand in a collective called Inspiral. Or uh, there's a guy named Trevor Schultz, an East German who's at the New School in New York who started something called a Platform Cooperativism, which is helping little collectives start companies together and doing business, you know, and sharing ownership of a company. So almost all of them, though, really do require some real world association. You know, we really do live locally. We live in real life. And we have, I, I like to say, human beings have the home field advantage in the real world. You know? <laughs> and, and it's hard to exercise that kind of power online. And I'm not saying that online is bad, but we have to realize it's a weird place. A lot of our social mechanisms, a lot of our human capabilities don't exist in cyberspace. So we shouldn't really be counting on it as a, a valid substitute for good local embodied um, political action. And I think that's something that bears much more thought. I mean, does meetup.com still exists? Actually, now I think about it, I still get uh, the occasional email from my meetup that I set up for the uh, Bernie campaign in 2016. But is meetup still a viable tool for people to use to do these kinds of things? Or are there newer things that have supplanted it? I mean, I think it's still viable. I mean, I don't know. It got bought by WeWork. I mean, I guess in the end, he had to satisfy even his... uh, in his advisors, or I think what happened was that um, Facebook was starting to clone Meetup. They were going to have that application on their platform. <laughs> That's when Meetup realized, oh my God, we're not going to be able to survive if we don't have a bigger bankroll. So they, they were absorbed by WeWork. So I don't know what will happen in that way, but there are plenty of ways to find the others online. And it's funny, you know, I'm still finding my favorite places online are not, you know, the modern social networks. There's still these old bulletin boards of whatever weird people share my particular interests. You know, <laughs> there's strange old places. 
Yeah, in fact, I've been a member of one of the strangest of those and one of the oldest of those places, The Well, for 30 years. Actually, it'll be 30 years in December. In fact, until two months ago, I was on the board of The Well. And, uh, you know, The Well is completely contrarian, right? They still charge $10 a month. Absolutely no anonymity allowed. They'll actually uh, phone call you and check your uh, credit card numbers, make sure it's not a gift card somebody bought at Walmart. There's no advertising. There is no tracking of your personal data and your behavior for any business purpose whatsoever. Frankly, they're sufficiently incompetent. They couldn't do it if they wanted to. But it is the antithesis of everything that Facebook is today. And I will say that despite being somewhat famous for its flame wars back in the day, it is a place of amazingly high quality discourse to this very day. Uh, It's one of those interesting corners of the internet that still perseveres. A couple thousand users. Well.com, right? If you want to look at something curious, go check it out. Yeah. Well. Oh, is it? SF.ca.us. That was our original uh, domain name way back yonder, right? I sometimes uh, mock the well, even though I still love it, and refer to it as the Colonial Williamsburg of the Internet. Because not only does it have a web interface from about 1998, and as you'll see if you go there, the web interface hasn't changed much since 1998, but it also still has a command line. And about 20% now of the users still use the command line. I've proposed, tongue-in-cheek, a possible business model is to have people put a camera on their computer pointing down at their keyboard and the screen and stream on Twitch. Old baby boomers doing command line interface stuff on the internet today. Kids today might pay to see something as weird as that. It's like kind of like Colonial Williamsburg, somebody blowing glass or, uh, you know, weaving, uh, you know, flax and uh, wool together on a loom in, uh, in Colonial Williamsburg. I know. Just to play a modem sound for kids today, it's like, you had to do what? Um, yeah, we dialed in. It was another world. Yeah, it's about time for us to wrap up here. But easing on technology, as I mentioned earlier, something I enjoy doing. Here is the technology geese that most amazes young people, at least in my experience. And that is describing the use of carbon paper. You did what? You took some kind of piece of paper and you put it between another piece of paper. And you put it in the typewriter and you typed and you sent one in and then you say, what the hell? They can uh, understand a lot of other technologies, but carbon paper uh, leaves them astounded. But then I'll turn to them and say, hey, the remnant of that idea you're using every day. And they go, what do you mean? What do you mean? I said, what do you think CC stands for on email? Carbon copy. Hardly anybody remembers that. They're what we call dead metaphors. You know, you say to someone, time is running out, and they don't realize that that's talking about an hourglass and the sand running through it, running out. You know, it's, it's, and there's a ton of them now from our industrial age childhood that means nothing to young folks today other than, the, uh, than it's just some random metaphor. It's interesting. Well, that's one within my lifetime. And it went from being absolutely real, something everybody knew about, carbon paper, carbon copies, to being, as you say, a dead metaphor, which CC, wonder what the hell that means, right? Anyway, this has been a wonderful conversation. I only got halfway through my questions list. Maybe we can get you back sometime. Yeah, it's been great to talk with you. I mean, it's good to be with someone who was there even before I was. If the ground you had laid for the net had only been the ground that they grew up in, I think we'd be in a better place today. Yeah, unfortunately, as we know from complexity science, which has been my third career, you can't predict the future, uh, really. And anyone who thinks they can is suffering from hubris. You know, we do the best we can with the world that we're given. I think Gandalf said that in The Lord of the Rings, and that's about the best we could ask for ourselves. 
production services and audio editing by Stanton Media Lab. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com. Thank you.